Welcome to another episode of the Africa Podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today with us is Dr. Teresa Shaheen, who teaches social entrepreneurship at the Yale School of Management and is the author of Social Entrepreneurship, Building Impact Step-by-Step. Step. Uh, Teresa is also the innovation, innovation advisor to Al-Fanad Innovation Venture, Venture Philanthropy. She helped start Al-Fanad in Lebanon and has experience working all over the region. Welcome, Teresa, to Africa. Thank you so much, Mikey. It's truly a pleasure to get to know Afikra's work and to be part of it in some small way. I think what you're doing is super inspiring and very much needed in the region. Thanks. Um, so let me start out with some of the sort of more basic questions um, around, uh, you know, you are associated with Yale School of Management. People think business, you know, MBA, Yale has a famous School of Management. Um, and there's, I feel like there's this, there is a dichotomy between business in the region and entrepreneurship in the region. And a lot of times people will say like, oh, I'm an entrepreneur, but my grandfather or grand uh, or father or a mother or grandmother was a business person. Right. And there's this, <laughs> there's this, there's this like imagined dichotomy between the two. Um, for everyone out there, what is the difference between being an entrepreneur and uh, in today's society in 2023 and, and sort of just being a general business person? Why is that? Why is there such a, like a, like obsession with entrepreneurship and innovation and not much attention thrown, like uh, paid to sort of like the broader business world. Does that make sense? Do you know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I I, I grew up telling people my father is a businessman, you know, like as if that's a job title. Um, yeah. And that is a very commonly used expression in the Arab world. And I think it, it is very broad and very vague. And I think that entrepreneurs are one set, subset of business people. They don't have to be business people. They can be social entrepreneurs, but we'll get more into that later. I think the difference is that there is such a thing as business as usual. And unfortunately, I think that is what most business people practice. They're not trying to change anything. They're not questioning assumptions or trying to do differently. They're just trying to make money which is an honorable and noble profession. Like they're trying to take care of their family. What an entrepreneur does is look at things differently and create a vision for how things could be different and how existing resources could be mobilized differently or maybe creating new resources and products and finding a way to create ecosystems and markets around that. And so it is very different. Um, I think Going back to the story about my dad, I think he was an entrepreneur because he he didn't do business as usual. He was a business person, but he was very rarely employed. He was usually mostly self-employed and he was always innovating around financial vehicles and new markets and trying to bring new things to existing settings. So yeah, I think that we need both. We yeah. need entrepreneurs that want to do things differently and create new jobs. And we also need existing businesses because that's where most people work and people need to make an honest living. Yeah. And I think existing businesses can play a huge role in sustainable development and social change. Okay. I'm going to get you to, to define this term, social entrepreneurship, because um, I suspect most people don't know what this term is. And people and many people who think they know it be a little shaky on the definition. So give us a sense of 
very specifically, what does it mean to be a social entrepreneur as, a, as opposed to just a regular old run-of-the-mill entrepreneur? Okay, sure. So the way, the most easy and simplified way to say it is that social entrepreneurs are, social entrepreneurship means being entrepreneurial about solving social problems. So the end goal here is creating more social justice and creating a more just equilibrium where other people benefit, not just you. And the entrepreneurship part is more like the means to an end. Like in order to create a more just system, we have to question assumptions and be innovative and mobilize resources differently um, and, and be more entrepreneurial about that. But the business yeah. aspect, the revenue generation, it's a means to an end. And in the end in and of itself is the social change that you're creating. Okay. So this is an area that I think there's a question mark about. Do you, when somebody comes to you and says, Hey, listen, I have a cool social venture I want to start. I have a, a really good, cool idea. Um, and I'm just going to go out and look for funding for it. Is your response? No, wrong answer. You need to figure out what the business model is. I mean, what is the advice that you give to somebody when they say, I want to, I'm, I'm a social entrepreneur, but I haven't figured out the business model yet. And I'm just going to go out and look for funding first. I'm okay with them not figuring out the business model. I think a lot of people think that social entrepreneurship is about finding a business model. That's only one small part of it. A huge part of it is understanding the problem that you're trying to solve. What is the social problem? Why does it still persist? You're not the first person that cared about this or even had an idea to change it. So what have others tried before you? What has worked and what hasn't? That's the part that I concentrate on when someone comes up to me with an idea. Does this person actually have experience working on this social topic? Have they talked to a lot of people experiencing this social challenge and or working to improve it? And if yes, then I do encourage them to, if they have a way of doing things differently, I do encourage them to seek funding um, and to partner with others, most importantly, as long as they're not trying to do something by themselves. Um, a lot of the time, you honestly figure out the revenue model as you go along. And even the most high-profit entrepreneurs are also like that. Like, I don't think Facebook had a revenue model when they started. I think that came later. I'm not saying that Facebook should be an example of golden standard sure. for anyone yeah, yeah. to follow. But, you know... So I think it's okay if you don't have everything figured out. Um, but if you're familiar with the problem and have an idea about how existing stakeholders could work together differently to address it, then yeah, I say you test it out. Okay, I have another question. Um, in Lebanon, at least, and a bunch of your experience is in Lebanon, and I, that's where I am right now. There are There's a lot of cynicism about the nonprofit sector, an enormous amount of cynicism, because... It's so, there's so many stories of corruption and this person got this much funding from this outside source and it, all the, you know, where did all the money go? There's a lot of cynicism about that entire sector. Um, where does, where does sort of the nonprofit and sort of charity world end and the social entrepreneurship world begin? Like, why are those two sectors different? And then I want to talk about how as a society and sort of people who have vested interests in these outcomes, how we can actually keep these organizations um, 
operating as the best version of themselves and not sort of fall prey to some of the sort of standard corruption that we can see. I'm going to answer your question about what's different between charities and social entrepreneurship. But first, I'm going to say people are really cynical sometimes, and I invite them to think about what the nonprofit sector in Lebanon has done for them. And there are a lot of corrupt nonprofits, just like there are a lot of corrupt for-profits, and there are a lot of corrupt academic institutions, and there are a lot of corrupt government institutions. I don't think the nonprofit sector in Lebanon is more corrupt than other sectors. I think the nonprofit sector in Lebanon has achieved more than the government in some sense. And for decades, especially during the Civil War and afterwards, the nonprofit sector focused on providing education and health and humanitarian relief and food. And there are so many inspiring NGOs in Lebanon that deserve to survive and thrive and continue doing their work. Now, what is the difference between charity and social entrepreneurship? Charity is when you're helping individuals to survive in the current system. And social entrepreneurship is when you're trying to change that system so that these individuals won't need your help in the future. That's the really basic way of saying it. Existing NGOs that have been functioning largely as charities in the past can become more entrepreneurial and can start functioning at least partly as social enterprises. In fact, Al-Fanar, the venture philanthropy organization you mentioned I support in Lebanon, who I know that Mirna, our executive director, has been a previous guest on this podcast, many of the NGOs that we work with are... Um, started out as charities and are finding revenue models to be more independent, self-sustaining social enterprises. However, you also can have new players entering the field that come from entrepreneurship, come from a business mindset, and are starting as social entrepreneurial ventures. And I think that's really exciting and really cool. So I think we need both. Yeah. Do you Are they sort of mutually exclusive? Do you see nonprofits that you've worked with before, you're familiar with and you're like, oh, you guys really should be a social entrepreneur. Uh, you should be a social entrepreneur. Uh, yeah, like one of my favorite examples of social enterprise in Lebanon is Arc-en-Ciel, which means rainbow in English. And um, a lot of people just think of them as a charity, right? They work with handicapped people um, and they do recycling and they... We have a lot of great programs. The Arconciel actually generates um, revenue. They have, I think, a wheelchair manufacturing facility. Um, they, they, I think, also used to charge for recycling. I'm not sure if they still do that. They have, like, um, last I heard, these, like, eco-village houses that generate revenue. So they have many different social enterprises, um, and their mission is largely charitable. So I don't think they recover all their costs. They still accept grants and donations, but they're so entrepreneurial. And I think their founders are social entrepreneurs. So that's a great example, I think, that comes to mind in Lebanon. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I want to talk a little bit about innovation. And like, you know, like you're, an, you're the innovation advisor um, and uh, to this organization, mm-hmm. what does that really mean? I mean, uh, you know, like help me help me think about what that term means because you know every month I'm invited to speak to something related to innovation or you know because <laughs> you like, are a social innovator. <laughs> I know, but I don't really. I, oftentimes, I don't really know what they mean by that. I mean, I feel like I'm 
every day having to like innovate ways to clean my Gmail inbox. That's, (laughs) 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 but totally. And that's okay. I don't think we, I don't think we should be snobby and exclusive about the way we use these terms. I think it's great to be inclusive. Like to me, innovation just means finding new ways to do things. It can be creating a new product or service, or it can be innovating within an existing company, which I hope yeah. most people will challenge themselves to do. So in the context of my work with Al-Fanar, Al-Fanar means lighthouse in Arabic, as you know, and it's a venture philanthropy organization that provides tailored financing and critical non-financial support, like management support to grassroots social enterprises. And the, the social enterprises we work with they are people, there are organizations, some nonprofit, some for-profit that serve the most marginalized populations in Lebanon and other Arab countries through job creation and education for women and youth and other programs. And so Al-Fanar has been around since 2004, um, and I joined it in 2012. So it's been just over a decade that I've been involved And even we within our organization can do things differently, both to support our investees, the social enterprises that we work with, to support them in their innovation, and also for us to innovate new ways of doing things. Some of the innovations that we've worked on include um, a new software that we created to help our investees to help track their impact real time and to help provide management support real time, like out with the quarterly report, in with the real time dashboard. And one project that I've been working on them now for the past few years since I joined Yale is on innovating new social impact metrics. And we can talk more about that if you want to, because once I start talking about social impact metrics, it's like a whole other topic. (laughs) No, that sounds great. I mean, for me, my my general frustration, and we sort of spoke about this uh, previously, um, is I feel like the entire sector is kind of broken. And in so many ways, I feel like the entire sector is really, really broken. Like, um, you're talking about the social sector, yeah, and and, and the sort of the grant cycle um, uh, sort of runaround that that exists. The the desire to find metrics um, in order to, you know, um, quantify impact. I mean, I came from a teaching background and. Largely, I feel like public school teaching, especially in the states, is being has been wrecked um, because of that desire, a very well intentioned desire to to quantify everything. Um, yeah, but there's like test all these scores instead of actual learning outcomes. Yeah, test scores instead of uh, learning outcomes, and it comes from a a, a very 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 well intentioned benevolent desire to improve the the quality of education and the quality of uh, the ultimate lives of the students. Um, but it's so hard. And I, I don't know how, you know, like what progress have we have we made? So yeah, so talk to me about uh, metrics. Talk to me about how to do this well in order to, to as they say, put ourselves out of business, right? So to get to the point where yeah. we're like, oh, we don't need to do this work anymore. We have succeeded. Okay, I'm going to talk to you about both of the things that you brought up and vented about because yeah. I also want to vent about them. Please. So before we get to metrics, you talked about the grant cycle. The social entrepreneurs I work with in Lebanon 
spend like half their time applying for funding. They have to write the application and then they have to report stuff. And then every funder wants to use them as like their poster child and they get all these visits and check-ins. So yeah, I do think that one of the reasons we want organizations to be self-sustaining social enterprises is so that they self-sustain and through their own revenue and they don't have to be donor driven and determining their agenda and spending so much time getting seeking money. And I think that investors can play a huge role. So if anyone who's listening is a social funder, I would say that I challenge you to find new ways of making your grantees life easier while of course mitigating your own risk, but like you're here to help them. You want them to spend the least time possible doing stuff for you. Like I've worked in with organizations where people had to send us receipts, you know, and then it was like, we'd circles like, oh no, this, this person bought a Pepsi when they were out. Like, oh my God, like really, come on. It's like, honestly, I think that giving awards is great when you give like, un, um, what do we call it? What's the lingo again? Unrestricted funding. I yeah. think like one venture philanthropy that I look up to and that our executive director, Mirnatha, looks up to is, is New Profit in the U.S. Mirna once told me that New Profit will just give a social entrepreneur. I don't remember if it's $100,000, if it's a million dollars. I know that's a big difference. Yeah. And it depends on what market you're working in. Maybe in the U.S. it's a million and in the it would be 100000 But the point is they just give them a large amount of money just so that the chief executive will be able to sit down with them and have the bandwidth to talk and innovate yeah. and think about how they can be doing their work better. I so think Echoing, Echoing Green does that as well. Yeah. And yeah. Ashoka gives monthly stipends. Echoing Green gives these fellowship awards. A lot of organizations that support social entrepreneurs do just that. Like they find people who have shown results and they support them to get more results. So okay, one so, thing we can do better about is funding. And then the other thing is impact metrics. But if you want to talk more about funding first, we can do that. You had a yeah, I, Before we get to impact metrics, I want to understand everyone along the supply chain of this process has good intentions, right? Like the, the people who are funding these funders, they themselves want to make a difference, right? So they're coming yeah. to the they're coming to the fund saying, hey, I think you guys are doing a good job at identifying social entrepreneurs and supporting them. We want to give you X number of dollars or euros or whatever to do to distribute it and to nurture this entire ecosystem. Then the people who work at these institutions who are identifying these, they also have good intentions. Um, they're not trying to micromanage and identify the source of that Pepsi's expenses, right? But where is where is the sort of the gravity of the gravity coming from that is bringing these ideas down? That's that is sort of bringing down their their good intentions. Like, is there another is there another source of essentially bad ideas that lead to sort of micromanagement or like where does the where does it come from? Everyone has everyone is interested in the best outcome, so. Why don't they, you know, identify good people and say, hey, we think you're going to do a good job. Here's X number of dollars. Do a great job. And if the if we don't have the outcomes we're looking for, then we're not going to blame it on the Pepsi. Like where where is it coming from? Yeah, that's a really 
funny existential question. It's like if every single person, if the grant maker and the venture philanthropy organization and the consultant, like if everyone wants to be able to let the social entrepreneur do their job better, who is it down the line that's forcing them to be so inefficient? I, I don't know the answer. And I wonder if the, the answer is just that there's nobody and that we all need to give ourselves permission to innovate and find new ways of doing things. Yeah. What do you think? So this is, and this is going to tie into the metrics. So I think, um, I think that there is um, oftentimes a lack of, um, um, oftentimes sort of a lack of courage by these, the intermediary organizations, the, the funds to say, we know, we, we know that we are taking guesses, right? We know we haven't figured this out. This is actually not scientific, right? These, these dashboards, these metrics, we made up these stats. These are analytics we made up and we're smart and we know what we're doing, but we are not, we can't predict the future. We think this organization is doing a great job. We are here to support them, but they might not. And we, you funder that we are taking money from to support these people, we are not going to hide behind these metrics. We're going to say, we got this one wrong. And I think some of the metrics that are created are to make up for the courage to say, we don't know we don't we we don't know how to predict this stuff perfectly. We are trying our best, and we spend a lot of times uh, a lot of time and energy to fund and support the people that we think are making the difference. But complexity and accountability are two very different things. And so, instead of being accountable for things not working out, I think they introduce complexity to make it look scientific. Like it often, could be, and yeah. it could be like a risk management thing. You know, I think impact management and risk management are important. And if I think if you want to create social change and if you want to innovate, you need to take risks and you need to know how to manage risk. I think a lot of this is like, we don't want to be liable, especially organizations that are taking international funds and taxpayers funds. Like they really need to document and prove where these funds are going, and that just creates a lot of bureaucracy. And so I do think that there's a need for organizations who are like, okay, we will be held accountable for the risk. And just like a venture capital fund fails nine times out of 10 when they invest in an entrepreneur, same thing perhaps with a venture philanthropy fund, where it's like, okay, we the buck stops here. Like we'll own the failures, we're going to invest and we're going to take risks and most of those risks will fail. And, but we have to take those risks in order to find the one that succeeds. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's transition this into metrics because I want to talk about what metrics do seem to work and what are things that are worthwhile, particularly the, just for context for the, the listeners, there is an enormous amount of energy and momentum towards social entrepreneurship globally, but in the Arab world specifically, um, so many people are interested in this, particularly because we have so many social problems, right? That, that we have problems worth fixing. And so um, there is a serious need and a serious desire to create sustainable business models to solve these problems. Um, so within that context, what are some metrics that are worth paying attention to and you think do add value? 
I think this is a hugely important topic to talk about, and it's very much tied to the funding, which we've been talking about. Impact metrics is very much tied to funding because when people are spending money on a social entrepreneur, they want to be able to say, what am I getting out of this Monday? Money. What is my funding? (laughs) I just made up a new word. Money plus funding. Monday. So it's like um, how people who make financial investments want to know what is their return on investment. People who make social investments measure the social return on investment or SROI. Like for every dollar I spend, how many children am I helping to stay in school, for example. This has led to a lot of time and energy being spent, as you mentioned, measuring impact and has led to something I really hate, which is when people both funders and social innovators start competing for numbers. Like a funder saying, we're only going to invest in entrepreneurs who are reaching at least a million people. Or an entrepreneur saying, you know, instead of working with these 10 youth to make sure that they get a job and keep a job and pursue their education, I'm just going to do a workshop and train a thousand youth because then I'll get the money instead of that entrepreneur that's working with 10 people. But honestly, at the end of the day, if you look at what social change has been created, I might be exaggerating the numbers, but just imagine along with me, you could do a training workshop and reach a thousand youth and not make a difference in any of these youth's future. Or you could spend years working with 10 or 50 or whatever, a smaller number of youth that are so hard to reach and actually changing their lives, changing their future children's lives and their families' lives. So it's not about reaching a large number of lives. Even at El Fanar, sometimes we have to aggregate to lives reached. And it's like, how have we reached thousands of lives? Like, have we given out thousands of t-shirts? Like, what's happening here? I want to know, what is the change you're creating? How long is it lasting? Are you reaching the hardest to reach people? So looking at AUB, if you want to support social entrepreneurs who just graduated with an MBA from the American University of Beirut, that's actually not that hard. But how about finding a social entrepreneur who's a generational refugee who was born and raised in Bishbarajna refugee camp, Masalan? It's... So there's so many different dimensions that are much more important than numbers reached. So I invite funders to reconsider that. And so I invite social entrepreneurs to reconsider that and to educate funders. I think you can have negotiating power with funders and you can shop for funders just like funders shop for you. And I really admire the work of the Impact Management Project, which you can learn more about at impactmanagementproject.org. And this was a time-bound project that was created by a number of like-minded social investors so that they can create a common language and get on the same page about how to measure social change. And they created a multidimensional framework so that it's not just the number of people you reach, but also who are you reaching? Is it the most difficult to reach people? What is the depth of the impact? What is the nature of the change you're creating? Are there any unintended consequences? So it's very multidimensional. And one of the case studies I share in my book is the project that we're trying to work on with Alfanar, which is with that exact generational refugee from Birgit Barajne that we invested in. And I can tell you more about that. Yeah, tell me about it. I'm curious. Okay, so this is the case study of Sufra, which is a social enterprise that was created by the Women's Program Association. 
which is a community-based organization that operates in, at the time, it was nine out of the 12 Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. And as you know, there's a list of jobs that Palestinian refugees are not allowed to hold in Lebanon. And there are a lot of tensions between refugees and host community and just a lot of barriers that they face. And Maryam Shahar, who's the generational refugee I mentioned, born and raised in Bishal Baraj near a refugee camp, was tired of just doing awareness and skill building activities for women in her community where they would come and learn about something or the other and then just go home and their lives wouldn't have changed. She wanted to create a production unit where they could come and create something that has economic value. So she surveyed the women and they said that they would like to work with food. It's something that they were already working with that was socially and culturally acceptable and also that was economically viable in the geopolitical context we work with. Like a low-cost food business is has a shot at succeeding. So when I was launching Efanad in Lebanon in 2012, one of our board members told me, you might want to meet Maryam. Um, and I think it was through a UN contact that they knew about the Women's Program Association. And Maryam pitched this idea to me as soon as I met her. I recognized a social entrepreneur when I saw her. This was not someone who was just doing charity as usual. She really wanted to disrupt things. So she pitched this catering company and we seeded it. Uh, after a long due diligence process, and we supported them. They partnered with Taulit Su'it Tayyib, which is another leading social enterprise in Lebanon, on um, training and hygiene and safety and branding and just everything. And we, we launched Sifra, which is this catering company. And Sifra, you know, by the time I, I um, handed over the day-to-day -day operations of Al-Fanad Lebanon many years later, we had about five or six um, investments in our portfolio. It's since then more than doubled. But at the time, even though Medium was only one-fifth of the portfolio, she was that venture was taking like half or more of my time. And by the way, for those who want to learn more about Sufra, there's a documentary about them. And you can um, watch the trailer on YouTube and you can visit sufrafilm.com to learn more. It's S-O-U-F-R-A film.com. So they were taking like half my time. They were taking one fifth of our funds in Lebanon. And it was like 30 women or less. We were not reaching hundreds or even thousands of women. So how do you measure the social change you're creating? Is it just number of lives reached? Is it just the amount of money these women are making per day? Even if you multiply by the number of people in their family, like on average in the refugee camp, there's five or six people per family. It's still just like a couple of hundred people. But to me, I felt this was making such a huge difference because we were changing who participates in the market. We were figuring out new legal and regulation pathways for them to launch their food truck. We were changing the way these women perceived themselves, the way their daughters and sons and husbands and the rest of the community perceived them. And I felt like they were changing what it means to be a refugee and to be a woman. And one thing Mariam used to tell me is that the moment I walk through the door, she feels stronger. She used to have a lot of dreams that she may not have attempted to implement or would have implemented in a donor-driven way, the way they used to do things before they started working with us, that she is now implementing 
as a social enterprise. Like she started a daycare. That used to be her dream is to start a daycare and she was able to do it. And so when I was presenting this work at Yale, I was invited to speak at Silliman College, which was headed by Dr. Lori Santos, who's super famous because she teaches the science of happiness. And um, number one course on Coursera. Happiness Lab. Yeah. And yeah. so I was just kind of venting about how we're not good at measuring change because the number of lives reached doesn't capture this. Like, and I was kind of venting, like, these women have become agents of change. And how do you measure that in a rhetorical way? And Lori was like, hold up. Of course you can measure agency. That's what we cognitive psychologists do. And so we were chatting after the talk and, and she was saying like, let's just start a research study with, with, with Maryam or a similar social entrepreneur. And let's demonstrate that when you're talking to your funders, you don't have to go to numbers reach. You can talk about this transformational effect you're having on individuals and community because you're activating their sense of agency. They went from being hopeless and helpless, which I believe is the biggest disease in Lebanon, that everyone, refugees and host community, just feel hopeless and helpless. And for a very good reason. There are so many social problems and no one feels, except for a small handful of social entrepreneurs, that they can do anything about them. And by the time they practiced social entrepreneurship and came out on the other side, they were activated as agents of change and they felt they can dream about change and they can be part of implementing change. And that is priceless. And that competes with hundreds of AUB MBAs that we gave a couple of thousand dollars to to start their ventures. Like that's huge. So we're now doing this research study with Havenly, a very similar social enterprise in New Haven, Connecticut, where I live and where Yale is based, to see if we can capture those more qualitative aspects of social change and the people that we work with. So it's not perfect. It's still trying to break something down into metric, but it at least creates this kind of awareness that it's about more than reaching a large number of people. And Havenly is taking it to the next level. I'm so happy I'm working with them. By the way, their website is havenlynhv.org. They actually don't just see success as helping a woman get a job and keep a job. They see success as helping a woman migrant or refugee to the US, know what her rights are and advocate for her rights and advocate for changing the laws and policies that affect her living situation, her housing, transportation, etc. So they're really looking to create ripple effects and systemic change in society. And that brings me to a framework I'd like to share, which was put forth by Ashoka, which is one of the organizations that supports social entrepreneurs. And they talk about these four concentric circles that really kind of illustrate in a metaphorical way the ripple effects of change. The first circle is direct service, which is like, okay, how many number of people are you reaching? And the second one is scaled direct service, like, okay, can we reach more people? Or can, can we scale deep? Like, can we have a more in-depth change? And then the third circle is systems change. Systems change is the kind of stuff I was talking about with that food truck. Like, are you changing who participates in the market? Are you finding new pathways for people to do business? Are you changing laws and policies the way the women of Havenly are doing? And then the last one is framework change, which is kind of harder to capture, but it's like, are you changing the way people even think about this? And Ashoka has a great example of framework change 
where they say, you know, 100 years ago, when uh, schools and ministries of education were created, the, the framework of education was like, every child should be literate and numerate, right? Everyone deserves to read and write. But now Ashoka sees their vision is a world where everybody is a change maker. So they're creating a whole new framework for education. Like reading and writing isn't enough. You have to see yourself as an agent of change. So that's how impact metrics need to evolve so that the work that is trying to meet those targets evolves from service to direct service to systems to change to framework change. And you can't capture those all of those levels of change with numbers. So when I warned we, you when I start talking about no, 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 but when do we, I can't stop. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I, I, know, I, I know I need to maintain, keep a sort of uh, my cynicism at bay, but I can't help it. I can't help it because I feel help like it. I'm in the, I'm in the conversation. If you're yeah, cynical. I feel like I'm just in the, the, the bathing in the, the ocean of cynicism. Um, but like, it's a very polluted ocean you're bathing in. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, Metaphorically and technically. <laughs> yeah. I feel like if I was having this conversation 60 years ago in the sixties, um, somebody in my position and somebody in your position could be having a similar conversation and they could be talking about how, how much the organization, the Ashoka's at the time were pushing the needle. Right. And then it always, there's like, oh yeah, we didn't actually, we didn't actually get that one. Right. <laughs> there's all these secondary ripple down effects, you know, like, so what do you think the, the very smart people at these organizations who understand that, like, this is not an original idea that I'm saying right now. Um, what are the sort of possible uh, knockdown effects that are unintended consequences of this, this entire sector growing and approaching it with this framework that we should be thinking about? Like, once upon a time, we were saying everyone should invest in charity. Charity is the way to go, obviously, right? Obviously, that's the way to go, right? A hundred years ago, obviously, that is what we should be doing, right? We should be investing and giving people soup kitchens and all this different stuff, right? Like that is clearly the way to go. And then there is uh, a secondary consequences to that. Then we say, well, maybe this framework doesn't work exactly as well. And then we do something else. What are the possible secondary um consequences unintended consequences that we should be keeping an eye out saying well if it swings too far in this direction maybe we actually should be um you know bouncing back and pushing back yeah. in this direction yeah there are three that come to mind and you know it is a new framework social entrepreneurship is a new framework there were no ashokas in the 60s ashoka was founded like in the 80s or 90s so this whole thing is new and we should be asking ourselves that question so the first unintended consequence and since my training comes from public health and my research is in public health i think about this a lot is creating parallel systems i'll give you a specific example in any country there is a healthcare system that is run by the government and the World Health Organization considers that health is a human right. So the government should be held accountable for providing us with an environment that, and services that help us fulfill that right. So what if, and this happens a lot, there are countries with weak, corrupt governments and very poor health systems. Um, and what if a well-intended social entrepreneur said, 
well, you know, all these people living in poverty who can't afford private health care and go to government hospitals are not getting good care. They wait in such a long time in line and then they get infections and then they have to travel and miss work. And so I'm going to create a new way for them to access health care. And I'm going to create low cost, high quality healthcare clinics because my goal is not profit, it's social change. I want to provide health so then everyone starts funding the social entrepreneur to provide help to low-income citizens. And then people become disinvested in strengthening the health system and in holding the government accountable for providing this human right. So that's called the parallel system. And that is a huge risk that social entrepreneurship can take. And it's very important for social entrepreneurs to think about whatever their innovation is, how can it strengthen existing systems? and change the way existing stakeholders work together instead of creating a parallel system. The second risk I think we're taking an unintended consequence is when, and this is happening a lot, funds and support goes to people who have strong networks, like the entrepreneur who's gonna get the funding to go back to the example I keep using, is going to be the MBA student from the American University of Beirut and not the generational refugee that does not feel confident about pitching or doesn't know the funder or whatever. They're not family friends. And so I think that that will propagate disparities. And um, as a result, it's very important both for people who are designing social innovations and funding them to think about how they can find lived experience leaders who are tackling these challenges and work with lived experience leaders like Mariam. There's an organization in the UK called the Center for Knowledge Equity that does just that. They started out with a lived experience movement and they're trying to educate funders that, you know, if you want to tackle substance abuse or homelessness or whatever, then you hire someone who has experienced substance abuse or has been unhoused and and you pay them to, to build the program. You don't hire the MBA student that has never experienced these things. And then the third thing, I think I said there were three things. What was the third thing? Hold on. <laughs> this always so happens to me. <laughs> the first thing was parallel systems. The second thing was um, the importance of working with lived experience leaders. Oh yeah. The third thing is when we get too focused on the distinction between social entrepreneurship and other business. So I'm going to bring us back to where we started at the very beginning of this podcast, which is what's the difference? You asked me what's the difference between entrepreneurship and business as usual, but I'm going to ask what is the difference between social entrepreneurship and other entrepreneurship and business as usual, like commercial entrepreneurship and business. And I would really love to see a world where it's not just the self-identified social entrepreneurs or social innovators who are trying to create social change, but the commercial entrepreneurs and the regular businesses. I think that all the social enterprises in the world, the change they can create might not account, might not add up to a drop in the bucket compared to if all the existing businesses held themselves accountable for creating positive social and environmental outcomes in addition to the economic and financial outcomes that they hold themselves accountable for. And every business has the opportunity to pick at at least one sustainable development goal, which is the set of global goals that the UN and businesses and governments have 
dedicated themselves to, which include like every topic you can think of, like health, education, poverty, climate, et cetera. Just whatever job you have, don't leave your job and try to be a social entrepreneur. Ask yourself, what resources do I have at my disposable? What supply chains, what processes, what communities do I have? Am I working with? And how can I make some kind of change that's in line with my growth strategy and economic growth and that contributes to positive social and environmental change? I think especially for those businesses that think long-term, which is important for long-term growth and competitiveness, there are so many opportunities to do that. And I don't want social entrepreneurship to become some kind of niche industry where like, okay, the social entrepreneurs have got it. We're just going to focus on financial growth at the cost of social and environmental outcomes instead of along with social and environmental growth. I think everyone needs to be part of social change. And the ideal world is a world where all entrepreneurship is social entrepreneurship and all businesses are socially responsible businesses. Cool. Um, thanks. That was a, a very comprehensive sort of breakdown of that complicated question. Did I, is there anything I didn't think of? Are there things that come to mind when you ask yourself that question? Like what, what might we end up creating that just ends up being not what we <laughs> intended? Um, no, I, I mean, the, the parallel systems for sure is something that I feel like is a lived experience. Um, in in lebanon i mean like uh, if you blur if you sort of squint your eyes so much of civil society in lebanon existed that way and yeah. like so many sort of parochial schools and stuff like that those are yeah. i mean those are essentially social uh, enterprises um we don't use that terminology because they're old-fashioned yeah. they're religious institutions but they're basically social enterprises and then they um, have huge political repercussions yeah and um so that is a fundamental problem. And I kind of disagree with the last sentence you said. I mean, you, the last sentence you said had two parts to it. And I think I agree with half of it, but not the second half. You said, okay. ideally, we you said ideally, we live in a world in which uh, all organizations are social enterprises. And then you're like, and or socially responsible. I definitely agree with the second part, because I do believe that I do believe that a telephone company should be social, socially responsible. I don't think that they should be social enterprises. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so I think I'll take that. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah. So um, uh, the other thing that I kind of think about is that um, Largely, I feel like social enterprises should be very sort of focused community solving, their, as you said, their lived experience um, and solving the problems that they understand and really be focused on their community. Um, and so and I think those are the organizations that actually do put themselves out of business, which is the which is the point. Um, yeah. And they're able to do that, which is great. Um, doing stuff sort of at a broad scale, I think, is really, really hard because the the nature of these problems these systemic problems are so 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 um nuanced and so uh impacted by their own communities that to sort of have a one uh uh a one size fits all approach even if you kind of customize it 
they're so hard because they're local stakeholders and local nuances that are um, unavoidable. Um, I want to I want to get to our quick uh, Q and A, and then we're going to wrap up. So um, let's talk a little bit about the quick Q and A. Okay, first, what are you reading or watching these days? I'm reading a book by Robert. Does this have to be re- related to social entrepreneurship? No, okay. no, no, no. I'm, no reading, I'm reading a book by Robert Galbraith, which is the pen name for J.K. Rowling. And it's one of the books in the Cormoran Strike series. So it's like a detective series. So that's the book that I'm reading right now. And I'm watching, I just finished watching on Netflix, um, Grace and Frankie, which is this comedy about these two older women that live together. Uh, and they're total opposites, and it's just like really funny and silly. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I love I love that show. Um, who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Um, I think I would want to shadow AOC. <laughs> I think she's awesome. Um, yeah, definitely. Cool. What do people most misunderstand about your work? I think they they think that social entrepreneurship is about business models, and it's not. It's actually about figuring out how to create social change. Cool. Um, and then the last one, I, I, I was one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I think social innovation or just social change is hard. Like, I'm creating this new Coursera course that's going to be out very soon where everyone can basically take my course at Yale for free and they don't have to buy the book. They can just watch the videos for free and trying to figure out what to call it. So if anyone has ideas, definitely tell me because I don't want to call it social entrepreneurship because then it will just come with all those misconceptions. It's just like how to create social change. So maybe I should just call it that. I think you just did. (laughs) <laughs> um, whose work do you admire or are inspired by? I'm going to change this question. Outside of your sector. Because oh, there's, thank you. That's such there's, a nice there's an endless number of people inside your sector. And yeah. what I mean by this is when you're kind of in a rut, who, like, where do you go to? What's the well that you go to that is like reinvigorates your inspiration or like gets you up and running again? I think probably musicians. I think even just like pop music, like everybody is always down on people like Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus. But like when I listen to their songs, I feel totally uplifted. And these are young women that are badass and just tell it like it is and don't care what people think. And that always gives me such an energy boost. Okay, I'm going to ask one final question before we wrap up. What do you think are some of the big social um, problems, systemic problems in the Arab world that need changing, right? And you you don't necessarily know how to change them, but you're like, I wish some more people were chipping away at this or and sort of iterating and trying new stuff because this is a problem. This is a knot that we, doesn't seem to be untie untieable right now and i wish there were more people trying to untie this knot i think voting (laughs) honestly i think voting like we wouldn't need social entrepreneurs if the government was doing its job and people for some reason don't feel like they have 
the sense of agency or accountability to choose who represents them and change the government. And I think if we could just get more people to vote in a safe, confidential way where no one ever knew what they were voting for, who they were voting for, and if we get could get them information about candidates that were really trying to create a better society for them, then that is the hardest problem to solve, obviously, because no one's been able to solve it. And I think that would make the biggest difference. Just good old fashioned democracy. <laughs> what does that look like in most of the Arab world that doesn't, it's not, none of they're not democracies. Like, um, so. I don't you know. know. I, I don't know. Like, I, I just, I feel so frustrated that in Lebanon, which is supposedly a democracy, it's not really working. And I guess in the rest of the Arab world, if I were to rephrase it to not use the word democracy, I would say citizens having power and having input into the decisions that shape their lives, more broadly speaking. Cool. That's great. Um, well, it's easy to find Teresa's uh, stuff online. Just type in Teresa Shaheen, T-E-R-E-S-A-C-H-A-H-I-N-E. Uh, for those listening to the podcast. Um, Teresa, thanks so much for this. I really appreciate you doing this. Thank you, Mikey, for inviting me. I really enjoyed it. I hope we can have a follow-up conversation in person soon when it comes yeah. to Lebanon. And thank you for all the work you're doing. And thank you for everyone who joined and, and who listened, especially till the end. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafikita.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcasts and YouTube stuff. You should know that everything we do is all towards a mission of converting passive interest in the histories and cultures of the Arab world into an active intellectual curiosity. By listening to this, you're a part of that movement, so thank you for being here. If you'd like to support our work, go to afikra.com slash support and join the hundreds of people around the world who make this work possible. Thanks.